0: Welcome here on Easter Sunday to Corinth Church. Uh, to those of you sitting behind the baptism, I am still here, even though you can't see me. Okay, make sure. Well, first of all, if you haven't gone through the Welcome Center this morning, just want you to know that there is a family photo booth set up over there, so a big backdrop says Easter 2019. And if you got your smartphone, which I know everyone does, uh, please take your time after the service, go over there, arrange your family however you want to in a quick fashion, and take a picture and just let that be our gift to you to remember this Sunday um you know i was looking at the resurrection story and bob incredibly got here to us as we have gone to be preaching through the apostles creed so as we preach through the apostles creed we start out at the very beginning of the apostles creed and we say i believe in god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth and in jesus christ his only begotten son of our lord who was conceived by the holy spirit born of the virgin mary suffered under pontius pilate was crucified dead and buried he descended into hell On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And so Bob, of course, who is an amazing mathematician, timed it exactly so that we would get to that part of the Apostles' Creed here on Resurrection Sunday. But When we talk about the resurrection, there's so much to talk about. And I realize that we have a huge, vast group of people in this room, some who are like John in this story. And John in this story sees the evidence, puts it together with what's going on and what he's read in Scripture and goes, I believe Mary, who needs to kind of hang around for a while and figure out what's going on, and hopefully she does. She does hang out for a while, and all these things come together, and her hanging out for a while means that she gets to see Jesus. And then there's Peter, who sees it and then leaves. Well, first of all, we've had all those people in here. We've got people that are like, I believe. And then we've got people in here that are like, oh, I want to hear a little bit more. And then we've got some people like, I'm not sure I believe about that. And then we probably have some people that are like, I definitely don't believe I'm here because my mom said we can only have lunch afterwards if we came to church. So I love all of you that you're all here. That is awesome. But you know what? We know that the resurrection is true, not just from the forensic evidence. Now, we have forensic evidence. We're going to talk about the forensic evidence during the sermon. Things like the grave cloth. Things like, you know, the way that the stone was rolled away. Things that happened, what, to every single one of the disciples afterwards. So many things, you know, it was decided that not only the Jews, but the Romans and the Christians would all come together and say, there was a man named Jesus and he was killed and then he's gone. And so there are all those things. But we not only know that the resurrection is true from the forensic evidence, we also know it's true from the human nature evidence of reading this story. Now, you know what? You, the only way that the human nature evidence reading the story could be any more convincing that the actual tendencies of men and women are seen so clearly in this story would have been if Mary Magdalene, we read the story and it said, and Mary Magdalene was on her way with 19 throw pillows to place in random places or the place where Jesus was laying. That would have been even more human nature. But ladies, I want to just invite you into this first part of human nature. How many of y'all have ever said to your husband, hey, will you get the ranch dressing for me out of the refrigerator? What does your husband do? Opens the refrigerator door, looks in, doesn't see it. He looks for five seconds, by the way, closes the door, and then turns incredulously to the lady say, we don't have any ranch dressing. which you go back to the refrigerator, and you open it up for him, and you push aside the big thing of orange juice and the milk and everything, and there's eight ranch dressings back there. He just refuses to stay long enough to look. We have that. We have the the proof of the evidence of human nature here also, because we have Peter, James, John, and Mary. Actually, James is not there, but Peter, John, and Mary, and they all show up. And what happens? Peter and John look in. Uh, don't see anything. All right, later. To which Mary, of course, is because women, you all, you, you, you're, you're gluttons for detail. It's why we can decorate for a bridal shower as men in fifteen minutes, and you take five hours. We don't know what you're doing in there, but she stays, and she's an attention to detail. And you see the characteristics of both men show up so clearly in Scripture here. And so we're here today because we're celebrating a historical event that happened. We're not not here commemorating a philosophy that we all believe in. We're not here memorializing something that may or may not happen. We're here 2,000 years later because of a historical event, and that event is the resurrection of Christ. And so if you want to follow with me in your scripture, we're going to go quickly, and I'm going to jump through each one of these scriptures verse by verse and go. So turn with me to John chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 1 through 18. And so we start with verse 1. In verse 1, we see Mary's broken eagerness. In verse 1, you see Mary's broken eagerness. She is driven by grief, and she is driven by loss. And what does she do? She goes to visit the tomb. You and I see this all the time. The person may be gone, but there is some kind of power in returning to the place where that person is buried. And we see it over here in Oakwood, and we see it over here where uh, we even have our Corinth internment here on, on the property. But there is something that has driven her in grief and loss to go to the grave. And when she gets there, the massive stone, remember this was not a stone that Mary could have even moved, but this was a stone that would have been a team of people. The stone has moved away. And this was alarming for several reasons, but for the main reason was it happened at dark. And teenagers, just like your parents tell you, nothing good in a graveyard happens at dark, just kind of like nothing good on a date happens after midnight. So that's why your curfew is 11. Suck it up. So, But verse 2 she she the 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 stone being turned the the seeing it what has happened after dark causes great alarm and fear because what's she going to fear what has happened after dark is someone has come in and stolen Christ's body someone has come in and taken him and so she fears treachery by the Jewish leaders and so she runs back to get help and as she runs back to get help she she gets John and Peter now don't make too much out of this why one was faster than the other my theory is just that John is younger than Peter right now if. Somebody came back and said something happened, and they came and got me and Kevin. Kevin would whoop my butt to wherever it is we're running to. He's younger than me, he is more spry, and that's just what happens. So, John outpaces Peter to the grave. So, when they get there, you, you, you gotta remember don't give these people t- such a hard time about kind of like staying on the outside of the tomb. It's a tomb. It's just now getting light. You know, that kind of eerie time in the morning. Maybe it's foggy. I don't know if that helps you think about it kind of like this morning. But they're outside the tomb, and there's got to be a little bit of a fear and trepidation about going into the place of the dead, going into where someone dead has been. So there's a little fear here in verse, chapter, in verse 5, and 6, and 7. So entering the tomb, they see several of the first pieces of the evidence of the resurrection. If someone had stolen the body, why in the world were the grave clothes and the The actual head wrapping taken off and neatly laid to the side. They were put there to say, I am risen. I am not stolen. I have risen. I'm not here anymore. And so, this is the evidence that is against the grave robbers, and it was left there intentionally. And we have to remember, and I'm going to say this again. We believe that Christ is risen from the dead and our risen Lord, not because of blind faith, but because of evidence based on reason. Anyone that just says, well, I have blind faith that Jesus raised from the dead, I would, I would actually tell you, you have no faith. You have superstition, because we have faith based on evidence and based on reason. Let me get verses 8, 9, and 10. And so we see the difference between the three people, not all played out, but starting to be played out. And we see it played out first in John. So John takes the evidence that is there, and he couples it with what not only has been said in the Old Testament about Christ's resurrection, we would say from Psalms, and I believe early in the Psalms, you know, I will not let my beloved rot in the grave. But we would carry it out to even Jesus' own words himself, and he takes the evidence and he puts it together with God's word and testimony, and he believes. And what what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who did not see and yet still believe. And so John takes the evidence, he doesn't see the risen Lord, but he believes, Peter takes it, weighs it, and we don't know what's going on with Peter. We just think, gosh, I don't know what's going on. And we see that he's left. And so he does neither of which, however, John or Peter hang around. But then we turn and we focus the story on Mary. And in contemporary service, I'm going to be talking about what happens when you remain with Jesus long enough to one, examine the evidence. Number 2 be called by name, number 3 confront your mis- your misconceptions about Christ, and number 4 be commissioned. By him, Will you hang out with Jesus? Will you wait long enough for those four things to happen? So Mary begins this process. And so in verse 11, Mary remains, and the text tells us that she was weeping. Actually, that is a light term. When we say weeping, that might be quiet. In the, in the Jewish tradition, she is wailing. She, you, you, know, you can just imagine. Now this is not just I'm paid to go wail like the people that we read about in the stories in John chapter 11. This is, she's weeping and wailing. And you and I know this when we have seen someone that has confronted the death of someone that was so beloved to them that words do not make sense at this point. All I can do is just out of my gut, let it out, let out my emotions. So in in this moment, she is there and the grief is coupled now in this moment with shock. I'm so upset and now I've come just to do whatever I could and the stone is rolled away and the body of my Savior is gone. And so then we get to verse 12. And in verse 12, also don't want to read too much into this. I just want to say that when I have been in contact and when I have been in this place and when people in my family have been in this place, when you are grieving to that place, I believe sometimes you could see an angel and just be like, there was two angels in the tomb, big deal. You know, I don't know, I'm just sad. And it's, you know, even in just these moments of sheer grief, the fact that there's two angels, one at the head and the foot of where Jesus laid, just don't seem like any big deal to her. But the beautiful part about this, and this is something that Warren Wiersbe says, if you notice in verse 12 that it says that there was an angel at the foot and the head of where the place where Jesus had laid. And many people have said, doesn't that also give you the beautiful, or the beautiful kind of reiteration of the mercy seat from Exodus twenty-five nineteen, which was the covering that was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence was thought to dwell. And you have these two cherubim, one at the head and one at the foot. But now there's one at the head and one at the foot, and the place where the dead Christ was supposed to be, been, he is gone. And this just kind of represents the way to the Father is now open. You can come to the Father now because of what Christ has done on the cross. And so verse 13, Jesus then, who is not recognized by her, asks no truer question that has ever been asked in the entire world. Why are you crying? It's a little bit like someone sitting at a table in this moment with Jesus there, Mary crying, someone sitting there at a Thanksgiving dinner going, oh, I'm so hungry. And you almost go, why? Why are you so hungry? And Jesus asks in this moment, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Here I am. But she's, as we're going to tell from verse 16, excuse me, verse 15, she's not even looking at him. And so she says, why are you crying? Mary's so devoted, even in her despair, though, what does she say? They have taken away the body of my Lord. She's devoted even in despair. She still recognizes that even in death, even in this moment of shock and grief, he is still Lord. And that just comes even back to where we come to our places in faith. Where the, so oftentimes we've gone, and this is, this is a misconception about Jesus. I thought Jesus was going to show up in the exact way that I thought he should. In the exact way that I think he ought to. In the exact way that I think he should respond. And he doesn't. And we're broken. And Jesus is saying, hang on. Don't let your grief blind you. And, and Mary in her grief still says, I still believe that he is Lord. Then verse 14, in verse 14, circumstances mask her from being able to see the truth. Because she glances over her shoulder, she sees someone standing there, but the circumstances of the shock of her grief mask her from being able to see the truth. there verse 15, Jesus says to her, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Now he uses the same phrase in John 18.4 when the soldiers come to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. And he says, who are you looking for? Well, he says the exact same phrase to her. Who are you looking for? And he's saying, if you could see past your emotion, if you could see past these circumstances, if you would open your eyes. And then in verse 16, we realize that it says, she turned back to him. Or when he says her name, she she had pivoted away from him. And often our emotion makes us pivot away from God. Not the truth, not the facts, but our emotion makes us pivot away from God. And she had pivoted away from God. And so in verse 16... Verse 15, she says, tell me where they've taken him. Verse 16, we get her to come back and we remember John 10, 3. Where John 10, 3, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd and I call my sheep by name. They hear and they recognize my voice. And he calls her by name. And she turns back to him. She turns back to him. And in her grief and discouragement, she is called by name. Jesus knows your name. This whole thing is not how corporately we can all come and just corporately be a church. That is religion. The difference is in Christianity, you are called to respond to a risen Lord. That is what she does. And so in verse 17, we get this, we get this incredible thing after she's called him by name. She, you know, she, can, she just goes for his feet. She wants to just hold on to him. And it's a perplexing thing that he would say, don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me. Just, that just seems you're kind of like, hey, hold on, Jesus. This doesn't just line up with the, with the cuddly, wonderful Jesus holding the sheep around his neck or letting all the children be around him. This just doesn't jive here. But let me explain what's going on when he says, don't cling to me. First of all, he's telling her, Mary, it's not going to be like it was before. My earthly ministry is completed. We're entering a new era. And in that era, I am going to ascend to the Father, and I will sit at the right hand of the Father, and I will intercede for you. This is a new era. It's not going to be like it was before. I'm not the favorite Jesus, uh, your favorite version of me. I'm not that. I am who I am. But then also he says, Mary, you have a job to do. You have a job to do. And we've got to stop and realize right now that Mary is the first person commissioned to share the good news of the resurrection. So anyone that would ever say, well, Christianity is this thing that just keeps women down and just holds them down. I want to stop you right there and say in a culture that didn't have anything to do with women, women were possessions, women were to be silent. Women are the ones who were at the cross. Women are the witnesses of the resurrection. And a woman was the first person who was commissioned to go and share the good news of the resurrection of Christ. You're commissioned. And then he says these words, don't just go and say that Our father, but he says, Go to my brothers and tell them that your father and my father, your Lord and my Lord, your God and my God, and go and tell them. And this is the first time, too, that we've been fully adopted into the family. It's not just ours, it's your father. You can call him your father. And then we get verse 18. Mary is faithful to the task. And faithful to the task, with her devotion, she goes and she shares it with these timid men who are then later on in the next text still hiding out in a room. But she, even in despair, would not give up on calling Jesus Lord. And then he revealed himself to her, called her by name, and commissioned her.
1: Unquestionably, the story in front of us on Easter Sunday is the greatest story of death to resurrection, of despair to hope that's ever been told. But there are always versions of those stories that remind us of God. And you 've heard the Lauder story this morning, what an, a wonderful story of god 's grace poured into grief over to my left is a family that uh, just the, the donor family just met the recipient family with a heart transplant this past couple of days so they they 're here in church together, donor family and recipient family, and there's a story out of death and grief uh, out of which emerges life. Well, the story that I want to start with is not anywhere near as cool as either one of those. I'm just telling you. But I had a little uh, sort of death to uh, new life story this past week. By the way, I, I always try to, when we have a lot of guests. I feel like I should remind you or tell you that at the 8:30 service, Pastor Paul and I share the sermon time. This isn't like oh, like I thought we were done with the sermon. What's this guy doing up there? So we both preach at 11 o'clock and we preach part of our sermon at the uh, 830 service. That's how we do things around here. So I, I got a couple pictures to show you with, with my story. And uh, uh, the, the theme of my message is letting go of Jesus. But l- let me go to this, this uh, picture here. So down in our basement, is that going to work for me? Go ahead and click then. if I say click, wait a minute, helps to turn it on. Okay, I'll try it again here in a minute. So down in our basement, the only basement we have are a couple of stained glass windows. We told you this is our 150th anniversary. And uh, so there are some neat tie-ins here. They're getting ready to renovate our offices. And I've been looking at these two stained glass windows that were in our old downtown church. Some of them have been restored lately. And I've been thinking, you know, it would be so cool to restore those somewhere during our office renovations. So the one on the left is the sower and the seed. I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. But the one on the right is actually the story that we're talking about today. So I've never gotten a really good look at this. So Joe Condilis over there uh, is a video guy, and he had some lighting, and we went down there on Friday. And so look at this picture on the right now, and watch what happens when we put some light in front of it. And that's been sitting in our basement for 60 years with nobody able really to see it and appreciate what's down there. So this is, the, this is the story that we're on today. And here's Jesus showing up with Mary Magdalene weeping at the tomb. And whenever I see sort of artwork, it helps me visualize some aspect of the story I hadn't thought about. And at first I was kind of pushing back against this because you'll notice that you don't see uh, nail prints in Jesus' hands or feet. And we've had some conversations this week in a couple of my Bible studies about how much of Jesus' suffering was still visible after the cross or after the resurrection. And in this one, there's none at all. And I started thinking about that because there are stories like Jesus appearing to Thomas where he says, look at my prints in my hands and feet, and on the Emmaus Road where he does the same thing. And even in the book of Revelation, it says that Jesus appeared as a lamb having been slain But then I wondered, you know, maybe I've never really thought about that enough. Is it necessary if Jesus has scars in one appearance for them to be visible everywhere he is? If he has this resurrection body and can walk through doors and come back, isn't it possible that when people needed to see the scar, it was there? And when they didn't need to see the scar in his resurrection appearance, that it wasn't there. So I don't know whether there's anything to that or not, but just looking at this, I'm going like, I want to see this story again with fresh eyes. I want to see things, hear things I've never seen before. And that led me, and Pastor Paul's already gone through the whole story, so I won't do what I'm going to do at 11, which is what he just did, and go through the story. I want to jump to verse 17, which was the place that I saw a number of things that were sort of fresh and new for me in the story of Mary Magdalene and Jesus. So what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene when she turns around is, Do not hold on to me. That word uh, is sometimes translated, do not touch me. Touch is way too mild a word. This is actually a word that means to hold on, to grasp, to sort of entangle two people together. So it's even used in some places, it's not the implication here, but it's even used in some places, this same word as a sensual or sexual embrace. That's how powerful this word is. So don't think of Mary just going like, you know, she's kind of patting him or whatever. She has wrapped her arms around him and she is not letting go. There's a huge, tight embrace here. And Jesus says, stop grasping me like that. Why? Because, and the word for is is important here because I've been pondering this week why is the don't hold on to me connected to the ascension. We're just here on resurrection day. The ascension is not going to happen for another 40 days. So why does the ascension come out of his mouth? This is the first thing we hear Jesus saying after his resurrection, and he's already talking about ascension. And he specifically ties it together with this little word for, I have not yet ascended to the Father. And probably the reason for that is, Going back to ascended again. So probably the reason for that is that Jesus had told his disciples, it's going to be better for you if I go away. So what Jesus is reintroducing here is the idea that he's going to have to leave, but she's holding on to a vision of Jesus that is less than what she really needs. She's holding on to a limited Jesus, and the one who is standing in front of her is so much greater than the one she last saw. Not only on the cross, but really through her whole experience with him, this Jesus is actually so much better. So don't hold on to this Jesus that you think I am. am, I'm getting ready to ascend to the Father. Instead, he says, go... uh All right, there we go. Go... Come on, Bob. So instead, he gives her a commission, go and tell my brothers, and as Pastor Paul said, that's an important part of this, first time in the Gospels, Jesus' disciples are referred to as his brothers, so that's powerful, and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So there's both relationship and distance here. We have the same Father, we have the same God, but we're not the same We don't have exactly the same relationship to him. So all of these words are very powerful. So let me come back to this idea of letting go of Jesus. You might think that's an odd sermon title for Easter Sunday. Why would we come to church on Easter and the pastor goes, you need to let go of Jesus. The problem is that Mary Magdalene needs to let go of the wrong ideas about Jesus, the, the ideas about Jesus that are actually holding her back. And when you think about the ways in which she is holding on to the wrong Jesus, they may be the same ways that you tend to hold on to the wrong Jesus. So there are several ways in which uh, Mary actually needs to let go of Jesus. First of all, she needs to let go of the predictable Jesus. And all of us have times in our lives where we think we know exactly what Jesus is going to do next. Maybe we've seen him do this before. Or maybe we've read somewhere in the Bible where we know that Jesus raised someone from the dead or Jesus healed the sick or Jesus gave direct guidance through a vision. And we go like, I know what Jesus is supposed to do here based on my experience or the Bible. And the first way we need to let go of Jesus is the same way that Mary needed to let go of Jesus, to let go of the predictable Jesus. Who would ever have predicted the crucifixion except for Jesus, and even then it didn't connect Who would have ever predicted the resurrection except for Jesus? And even then, it didn't connect to his disciples. So no matter how much we've heard about the story, we always think we know what Jesus is going to do or we know what he's supposed to do. And on Easter Sunday, it's a good time to say, you know what, I need to let go of the predictable Jesus. It might actually be holding me back in my faith by assuming that Jesus is going to do something and he may be ready to do something absolutely, totally different and even better to renew me and to renew my faith and confidence and trust in him. So first of all, I need to let go of the predictable Jesus. Second, I need to let go of the indifferent Jesus. I love the part where Jesus sort of um, shows up behind her. Remember, she's actually peering into the tomb. So she's looking the wrong direction for Jesus, for one thing. She's looking inside where dead people are, and he's outside where living people are. And I sort of hear a twinkle in his voice when he says her name, Mary. Don't you think that's sort of a fun moment for Jesus? This is going to be so cool when she turns around and actually recognizes who I am. So... The indifferent Jesus is a Jesus that sometimes we need to let go because we think he's forgotten me. He, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know my name. He doesn't know my story. He's involved in other people's lives, but he's not involved in my, my life in the way that Uh, I would like for him to be. So I need to let go of the idea that Jesus is indifferent. Specifically because he's not predictable, he is also, his his inattention or seeming inattention to my situation doesn't mean he doesn't care. And this is one of the powerful parts of the story, to see Jesus showing up, not only in an unpredictable way, but in an intimate personal connection way. Mary, I know your name. I know your story. I know why you're here. I know your grief. I know your hurt. Mary, do you know that I know you? And sometimes we need to let go of the indifferent Jesus. And thirdly, sometimes we need to let go of the tangible Jesus. So this is the Jesus that I need to hold on to. And this is the part of the story, again, where Jesus has already said to his disciples, and we don't know if Mary was in the upper room or not, doesn't really matter, but Jesus has already said to his disciples, it's actually better for you that I go away. So Mary is holding on to the physical Jesus because that's the only way she knows to experience him. And in this moment, she thinks, if I let go of him, I might never see him again. Listen, there's no record in the Gospels that she ever did see him again after this moment. This was her one chance. So in a sense, she was right. And she's trying to hold on to the physical Jesus, the one she had heard teach. Who's going to instruct me? Who's going to do miracles? Who's going to remind me of his great power by what he does physically? And she needs to let go of that because the Jesus who is in heaven sitting at the Father's right hand, praying for you, interceding for you, loving you, caring for you, directing all of your life, it can not only do that for one person at a time or one group at a time as he did while on earth, but he actually can do it for all of us. He can do it here. He can do it in Paris where there are people grieving their great cathedral. He can do it in Sri Lanka where Christians worship this morning, Uh, came to church, and many of them never made it home or have seen their places of worship devastated by terrorist attacks on Easter Sunday. If Jesus had stayed physically in one place, tangible, then he actually literally could not be with everyone, everywhere, all at the same time. So that's why Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father because what's going to result from that is actually going to be better for you than having a tangible Jesus. I can be with you wherever you are, whatever happens all over the world from now until the end of time. So Mary needed to let go of the tangible Jesus. And then finally, Mary needed to let go of the comfortable Jesus, the Jesus that meets you right where you are. and He just says, hey, you're good, it's okay, I understand your problems and your pain, and you're kind of hurting today. And Jesus did all of that for her as he connected with her, but he also said to her, go, (laughs) go, Go somewhere else, I've got a mission for you, and tell my disciples, tell my brothers that I have risen from the dead. So he has a mission, he wants to change her, he wants to give her something to do. And listen, sometimes the things that Jesus asks us to do, instructs us to do, are not very comfortable at all. So if you've come to church today and you're thinking, okay, this Jesus who rose from the dead, that's a pretty cool story, and he's going to leave me exactly like I am? Jesus never leaves you exactly where you are. So we need to let go of the comfortable Jesus as well. So let me close by coming back to that other picture, that other stained glass window that's down there in our basement. So I told you there were two, and the one on the right is uh, this picture of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. The one on the left is the parable of the sower. And I have to tell you that honestly the one on the left is the one that first got my attention. Because we're getting ready Tuesday of this week to begin demolition in part of our elementary hall that will turn those classrooms into offices and later we will turn the offices into classrooms. So in the process of that renovation, I went back and I thought about this stained glass window again and I thought not just for me, but hopefully for pastors who follow me for, you know, a century or two or more, I would love them to have this, the parable of the sower right there in the office. So we're going to restore this window on the left to the pastor's study with a light behind it so that the pastor and everyone who comes into the pastor can can remember this is the job of the pastor. And this parable, Jesus says when he interprets it, the seed is the word of God. So probably some of you know this parable. Let me show you what this, so I've always looked at this and said, boy, the, the face is kind of just plain tan And there's not a lot of detail in the story, but still it's got a good image, right? So then we backlit it on Friday, and this is what it looks like. You can ooh and ah now. So I've not only never seen the face and the features there, but I've never seen the handful of seed being scattered along. And that's what a pastor does. We share the Word of God. The reason that's a comfort for me on Easter Sunday is because there, are cer- there have certainly been times through my pastoral ministry and the gray hair is, is, is good for you after a while where I think, man, everybody's going to be there on Easter Sunday. It's all the pressure's on me. You know, I've got to hit one out of the ballpark. And the older I get, the, realize, the more I realize I don't have to hit anything out of the ballpark. I don't change people's lives. What I do is scatter the seed of the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit than to water and fertilize and change lives. So why is that important for today? Because Pastor Paul and I and our worship team up here have simply been presenting for you again a fresh message about Jesus and Jesus risen indeed. But what you do with it is now up to you in response to the Holy Spirit. I'm not in charge of that. I'm simply saying that sometimes the Jesus that you've been holding on to, maybe even the Jesus that you have been uh, creating distance between you and him because of some disappointment or because it doesn't seem like he's real or because it doesn't seem like he's involved, friends, you need to let go of that Jesus. Whether you do or not is up to you. But you need to let go of that Jesus and hold on to the Jesus who is risen, who is Lord, who is in heaven, who is real, who is wanting to direct and have every aspect of your life under his guidance and control. That's the Jesus who loves you and who knows you. He gave his life for you on Friday. He paid for all of your sins. He rose again on Sunday that you might know he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he lives not only to make intercession for you, but lives that you might know that God has entered our world, has conquered death, and our lives matter nothing at all unless they are connected eternally to him. What will you do with that Jesus, the real Jesus, on this day? Let's pray together. And take a moment just in quiet. And for some of you, he always seems very real and personal and connected. And for some of you, He hasn't seemed that way for a long time. And I just want to tell you that he's so cool about you just saying that to him. He's all right with you saying, I've been disappointed in you, but I want to know you. I want to hear you say my name. I want to follow you. I want to trust you to forgive my sins and to give me the courage to live for you. Say that to him in these moments of quiet. And if there's some way you'd like to follow up with that, I can tell you that I and lots of other people here would love to talk with you further about what it means to walk with him and to trust him and obey him. Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you for the amazing stories that are passed down to us in the gospels. Thank you for the truth of the resurrection. May we leave here changed by the seed, which is the word of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.